1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
2: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
2: Sorry,
1: sorry, we're
3: here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
2: No, Lucky Land Casino.
0: With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no
3: purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
0: heads up this is the second in a three-part series so if you haven't already you should go back and listen to the last episode psych out part one lady wonder before continuing on here but if you can't or need a refresher, or you simply don't want to, let me remind you of the most important thing, that this all began with a psychic horse. Or I should say, a purportedly psychic horse named Lady Wonder who spelled out clairvoyant answers and prophecies on a gigantic homemade typewriter and was consulted in several disappearances and murders along with personal, political, and sports predictions for more than 30 years until she was exposed by magician, historian, and skeptic Milbourne Christopher as a parlor trick perpetrated by her owner, Claudia Fonda. But long before that, Lady Wonder was tested and deemed authentic by J.B. and Louisa Rhine. At that time, 1927, the Rhines were just beginning a long, steep ascendancy. A year earlier, they had scored their first high-profile investigation when they had debunked Mina Crandon, the most notorious psychic medium of the era. It's convenient that the Rhines should have had these two cases virtually back-to-back. It shows us that they were optimistic enough to believe in a psychic horse, but critical enough to out an accomplished con. It also gives us a little insight into the evolution of J.B. Ryan's thinking about how to test for extraordinary abilities and phenomena. The investigation of Mya Crandon was undertaken the same way that skeptics, believers, magicians, and the rest had been testing psychic claims for a century. Mina did her show, and the Rhines attempted to observe and pick through any potential trickery involved. It was, J.B. Rhine realized, a totally unsatisfactory state of affairs. Completely improvised, rife with possible breakpoints, subjective, unauthoritative. Those kinds of sessions couldn't prove anything, one way or the other, not scientifically, at least. Science demanded controls. It demanded set procedures. Most importantly, science demanded replication, a way to repeat the same test multiple times with multiple researchers and to achieve the same results. Without that, every effort of proving the existence of what Ryan called extrasensory perception, or ESP, was worthless. Lady Wonder presented the beginnings of a solution. The tests the Rhines performed on the horse were different from most psychical research that had been done before. They were delivered under various degrees and kinds of controls. The results could be tabulated, quantifiably. Louisa wrote down nine numbers, Lady guessed eight correctly, and one incorrectly. The Rhines could go further than saying, well that's amazing, as they might with a medium cold reading a message from beyond the grave. They could mathematically determine precisely how amazing it was, factoring what results should have been achieved by chance, and therefore how much better than luck the horse had performed. This was the start of a new way. It's clear that the Rhines took their experience with Lady Wonder and iterated upon it. Back at Duke University, J.B. Rhine, his wife Louisa, his mentor and boss William McDougall, and his colleague Carl Zenner began putting together a new program derived from the experience of testing Lady Wonder, a new scientifically credible method for evaluating extrasensory claims. Ryan called the new field parapsychology. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. This week's episode Psych Out Part 2 Pick a Card. Technically speaking, JB Ryan's parapsychology lab at Duke University was not the first of its kind. That distinction technically, belongs to Stanford, which started a program into psychical research in 1915 at the behest of Leland Stanford's brother, Thomas Welton Stanford. John E. Coover was hired on as Stanford University's first fellow in psychical research, but after two years of work and roughly 30,000 experiments into ESP conducted, Coover concluded there was no such thing. Ten years before Coover, the Society for Psychical Research had put together an honorarium for the society's recently departed secretary to be used to finance psychical research at Harvard. Harvard seems to have been reasonably nervous about this, and they dragged their feet for more than a decade. But in the mid-19-teens, the school received a number of high-profile donations. And these donations were contingent on Harvard investigating psychic activity. Obviously, the most prestigious university in the United States wasn't about to prostitute itself out for a handful of cash. So, oh no, that is what they did. My mistake. I'm sure it was a one-time lapse. In the fall of 1916, Professor Leonard Troland began building a lab for looking into telepathy and clairvoyance. In 1920, Harvard hired William McDougall, the president of England's Society for Psychical Research, and the school near Boston became, for a little while, the center of paranormal research worldwide. It's during McDougall's tenure that J.B. and Louisa came to Harvard, hoping to learn the thing not yet known as parapsychology. They'd been led to the topic by a lecture on spiritualism they'd attended at the University of Chicago, given by Arthur Conan Doyle. The Rhines debunked Mina Crandon, followed McDougal to Duke, credulously investigated Lady Wonder, and then, with the new idea in tow, set about forming the Parapsychology Lab. They started out modestly. JB and Louisa spent the summer of 1930 touring North Carolina summer camps with a specialized deck of cards, much like they'd used with Lady Wonder. The cards had no colors or suits, no jacks or queens, they were just sequential numbers, shuffled and drawn by the researchers. They sat across from volunteer campers, who were then asked to guess what number was on the card. They performed a thousand trials this way, but didn't get any significant results. It was as if the kids had no psychic abilities at all. In the fall, they moved the same basic approach into Duke. They replaced the numbers with letters and the campers with undergrads. But of 1,600 students tested, not a one showed any special powers. Things weren't off to a great start at the fledgling parapsychology lab. They'd been banging their heads against a wall for a year. It was either stop or keep banging until someone charted a third way. Find a different wall. Exactly who came up with the new system and under what circumstances is strangely undiscussed in the biographies, but it was likely Carl Zenner's idea, given that the new tool for parapsychological research bears his name, Zenner Cards. You've seen a deck of Zenner Cards, whether you know them by name or not. Along with the terms Ryan coined and popularized, ESP, parapsychology, they're among the most durable accoutrements of psychical research, featured in movies, television shows, hippie shops, and anywhere someone needs a quick shorthand for woo-woo things happen here. A star, a circle, a square, a plus sign, and three squiggly lines, like a pictorial river, each cast in a different color. 5 different cards, 5 copies of each card, for a total deck of 25, once you remove the jokers and rules for gin rummy. What made the Zenner cards superior to a regular deck of playing cards, or numerals, or letters? Oh no, I'm asking you, what made them superior? (laughs) Because I don't know. I can only presume that there was some thought that recognizing shapes happened in a different area or manner of the mind from recognizing digits and writing, and that ESP might function better with whatever part of the mind that was, but I haven't actually seen anyone, including Ryan and Zenner, make that argument. The benefits of the Zenner cards are not easy to see, but the downsides... (laughs) We will get back to the downsides. Now, there is one benefit, come to think of it. With five cards, each of five shapes, it's really easy to understand the expected outcomes, even for someone as mathematically challenged as me. Given 25 guesses, you'd expect five to be right on chance alone. So that is our baseline. If psychic abilities are real, somebody has to score more than five on the Zenner cards. And in May of 1931, someone did. His name was Adam Linsmeyer, and he was an econ student at Duke. According to legend, Linsmeyer was lazing about on a couch in the parapsychology lab for no particular reason when Rhine decided spontaneously to test him for fun. Rhine shuffled a pack of Zenner cards, walked over to a window, cornered the top card to see what it was, and asked Linsmeyer to guess. Star, he said. Linsmeyer was right. So, Rhine thumbed the next card. Square, said Linsmeyer. And it was Circle, River, Star, Square. Linsmeyer went on like this for nine straight cards in a row. Rhine calculated the odds of this run occurring by chance at less than one in a million. The next day, Ryan got Linsmeyer in a more standardized setting and tested him for 300 cards straight. Linsmeyer guessed nearly 40% of them right, almost twice the percentage he should have gotten by chance alone. Ryan had to work to keep his excitement invisible. He brought Linsmeyer back again and again for more Zenner card tests, and although his scores dwindled over time, Linsmeyer still performed better than chance on several future occasions. In fact, if you looked at the data more granularly, you'd see that his scores were always dwindling over time. He'd start off strong with stupefyingly long streaks of correct guesses, but the longer the questioning continued, the more cards Ryan flipped, the smaller the effect became. In his singularly impressive 300-card test, literally all of the effect presented in the first half In the last 150 cards, he hit it 20%, just like anybody else. Ryan put this down to stress. Linsmeyer put an awful lot of pressure on himself, seemed to really beat himself up when he failed, and the longer he went, the higher strung he got. Whatever the source of his abilities was, Ryan figured, stress suppressed it. It made sense, then, that Lindsmeyer seemed to be losing his gift over time. Adam Lindsmeyer was a working-class kid from Jersey. It was the Depression. His family was suffering back home. His brother had died some years back after a botched dental operation, and Lindsmeyer knew that he had to go home to support his ailing parents. He'd have to give up on college, on career, and on the parapsychology lab. Of course, he was too stressed to perform. Ryan was stressed too. After hundreds of subjects, he had finally found the real deal and now it was being taken away from him. He needed to leech some more data out of Lindsmeyer, but the more pressure, the less likely he was to get it. So on one of Lindsmeyer's last days in Durham, Ryan asked him to go for a relaxing car ride. After a while of putting about, calming down, enjoying the scenery, shooting the shit, Ryan pulled off to the side of the road, and pulled out a Zenner deck. There, in the car, with Rhine in the driver's seat and Lindsmeyer in the passenger, Rhine cut the deck, peeked at the top card, and placed it face down in Lindsmeyer's lap. Circle, he said. Right, Rhine responded. Plus sign, yes? Square, correct. There in the car, with his head tilted back and his eyes theoretically closed, Lindsmeyer got a streak of 15 guesses in a row. Ryan calculated the chances at 30 billion to one. Then Lindsmeyer fouled off, but still managed to guess a further six correct cards in that run, 21 out of 25. And then it was time for him to go, back to his family, back to Jersey. He never returned to school, never returned to testing. He was the most gifted psychic Rhine could have ever possibly conceived of, and he just walked away. The only signs of his continued existence were the Christmas cards he unfailingly sent the Rhines each winter. Fortunately for J.B. Ryan, Lindsmeyer wasn't the only one. Over the course of the 1930s, the Duke Parapsychology Lab tested hundreds of subjects. Most of them were students, and the overwhelming bulk of them scored at chance levels. A much smaller portion initially showed anomalous results, either higher than or lower than 20%. Almost all of them reverted to the mean when they were tested further. But seven of them, in addition to Linsmeyer, showed continued success. A year after the Lindsmeyer tests, a divinity student named Hubert Pierce Jr. showed up at the lab. He said that psychic abilities ran in his family, that his mother was telekinetic and had once overpowered two grown men who tried to hold down a table she was tipping. After a few promising Zenner readings, Pierce was put through a long series of tests overseen by Rhine's assistant, Joseph Gaither Pratt, conducted between August of 1933 and March of 1934. In regular Zener card trials, Pierce scored outrageously well, regularly guessing 10 out of 25, twice the chance odds. So at some point, Pratt upped the difficulty. Could Pierce do the same thing, but at a distance? He was positioned in the university library, while Pratt hunkered down in a room in the physics building, with a deck of Zener cards, which he shuffled and then slowly drew, one at a time face up upon a book. At the same time Pratt was recording the draw, Pierce was back in the library writing down his guesses. They performed the experiment 37 times with 1,850 cards. Pierce was right 558 times, 30%. The numbers held even when Pratt was positioned 250 yards away. Two of the other exceptional subjects were psychology student George Zirkel and his fiancé, Sarah Ownby. At first, Zirkel didn't seem to be anything special. His results, when tested by Ryan or Pratt, were right along the lines of chance. But then Zirkel asked them to bring in Ownby and have her test him. Like Pierce, their tests were also conducted at a distance, with Zirkel positioned two rooms away from Ownby, who was given the Zener deck as well as a telegraph key, which she pressed each time she drew a card. This triggered a buzz in Zirkel's room, who then made his guess. Under this setup, Zirkel produced the best results in the history of the parapsychology lab. When Ownby drew, from a 25-card deck, Zirkel guessed 23 correctly. When she drew 100 cards, he guessed 85 of them. It seemed as if the young lovers were telepathically attuned, even though when they reversed positions, Ownby wasn't able to guess the way Zirkel had. But... She told Ryan when she had taken a deck home one night, she had performed the experiment on herself. She shuffled the deck, lay it face down in front of her, and guessed the whole thing from top card to bottom. Then she drew them one at a time. She reported to Ryan that one time she had managed a perfect score, 25 out of 25, 100%. Although no one was there to validate this, Rhine took her at her word. I know, but stifle that pshaw for now. First, let's give J.B. Rhine a minute to bask. In 1934, he published a monograph of the lab's results, effectively arguing that he had proven the existence of ESP. Six years later, he published another large monograph, the first large-scale meta-study in scientific history, in which he argued for ESP again. And people took notice. After the science editor of the New York Times provided a favorable review, the floodgates opened. Parapsychology was about to go prime time, whether it was ready or not. Face Off launches April 9th. There is simply no way we are going to cover the entirety of 20th century parapsychology here. For one, there's a lot of it. Much more than you would possibly imagine, unless you've gone looking for the entirety of 20th century parapsychology, which unfortunately, I have. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't exist. Nobody, to my knowledge, has put together a comprehensive retrospective. And sure, that presents something of an opportunity. If I were to produce here that comprehensive retrospective, I would corner the market. And when somebody was looking for an expert on parapsychology, maybe they'd come to me. Then again, I've recently learned that when bad submarines dominate the news cycle, my switchboard doesn't exactly light up. So I guess you could say I'm not going to become the world's foremost expert on parapsychological history out of spite. But also sloth. Because, guys, there's too much of it. So here's what I'm thinking Instead of informing you, how's about I misinform you? Hear me out. Parapsychology, as laid out by JB Ryan, is an entirely different entity than the psychical research that preceded it. It's actually different than uh, most of the subjects we've looked at over the whole course of this show, because it looks a lot like science. It's almost, but not entirely, indistinguishable, in fact. And that's why we're going to end up spending so much time on this story, A lot of really smart folks were and are convinced by the evidence, including a lot of experts, and possibly you? Depending on the poll, somewhere around a bare majority of people believe in telepathy, clairvoyance, or some such ability which researchers today broadly refer to as psi. Roughly a third of respondents say that they have personally experienced some sort of psi phenomenon. I'm willing to bet that even most folks who say they don't believe in such things when asked still operate as if they do, at least on occasion. Now think about if you go bowling. Do you typically wind up, chuck the ball, turn around and walk back to your seat? Or do you watch as it rolls down the lane, attempting to will it into spinning away from the gutter? The next time you have friends over for a game of poker, see if you can catch yourself trying to intuit your opponent's hand, or trying to block out your mind so they don't intuit yours. Everyone has had the experience of some uncanny telepathic coincidence. You dream about some friend you haven't heard from in years, only to have them spontaneously call you. You get a bad feeling about a guy, or a car, or a trip, or an investment, only to have that feeling borne out down the line. Even for the most hardened of skeptics, i.e. me, these sorts of thoughts are ultimately insuppressible. Some psi boosters take this universality as evidence in itself. Pretty nearly all people from all cultures in all times and places have held some sort of belief in clairvoyance, precognition, etc. The specifics of those beliefs, they argue, are too similar to be coincidental, Pretty dubious claim, I'd argue, but let's give it to them for now. They must point to something real. Let's see. Through the next commercial break, I'm going to give you a selection of parapsychological history after the establishment of the Duke Lab, both to grant a general sense of how the field evolved, but moreover, to put the best, most intriguing face on it I can. Plus, tell a bunch of good stories. And then, We'll come back and talk about how it all went wrong and why you should not believe in ESP. And then I'll pull the rug out from under you. What? I didn't say anything. Let's go! After the publication of Extrasensory Perception in 1934, parapsychology, both as a term and as a practice, got an incredible shot in the arm. At Duke, J.B. Ryan became something of a scientific celebrity, and the parapsychology lab moved out from the psychology department and into a new 12-room building all its own, an independent program. Elsewhere, similar academic departments and labs began cropping up all over the world along with other independent researchers, and many of them reported their own spectacular results. First, there was Dr. Hans Bender, a Union assistant professor at the Psychological Institute at Bonn. Bender had been a believer in the paranormal since at least the time he first encountered a Ouija board in his teen years, and had already conducted a number of old-fashioned investigations into purported mediums. But like so many others, when he read Ryan's research, Bender recognized it as a new and better avenue for determining the truth of psychic claims. He soon found a suitable subject, a young philosophy student at Bonn whom he nicknamed Miss D in his writing. Dr. Bender's experiments on Miss D were similar to those performed at Duke, with a few important distinctions. He didn't use a Zenner deck, instead creating alphabet cards. And he didn't have her guess the letters on them, exactly. Miss D said that she could see and manipulate images in her mind's eye, and that was how she made her guesses, describing the pictures in her head prompted by Bender's card draws. So there was an extra degree of interpretation here, a point of failure. But nevertheless, Dr. Bender concluded that Miss D's performance had far outstripped chance. He went on to study many more cases of psychic activity, especially poltergeist hauntings, which he famously chalked up to the subconscious telekinetic abilities of people sensitive to psychic influence. In 1950, he founded the Institute for Frontier Areas of Psychology and Mental Health in Freiburg. Samuel George Soule was the opposite of Hans Bender. A British mathematician, Soule was a member of the spiritualist movement championed by Arthur Conan Doyle. He had survived the Battle of the Somme in World War I, but his brother had not, and he, like so many others, was taken by the promise of communicating with the dead. He joined the Society for Psychical Research in 1922 and began conducting his own brand of investigations. Most famously, he credulously investigated a medium by the name of Blanche Cooper and concluded that she had supernatural powers. Interestingly, though, one of the spirits Cooper channeled was an old school friend of Soul's named Gordon Davis. At the time of the reading, Soul believed Davis to be dead. But later, he found out that he was alive and well. Rather than arousing his skepticism, Soule instead conjectured that while Cooper thought she was communicating with the dead, she was actually reading his mind. By the time J.B. Ryan was conducting his ESP experiments at Duke, however, Soul had transformed into a skeptic. He had been hoodwinked by a French medium in 1929 and later discovered the simple trickery which had duped him. While Ryan was flipping Zener cards, Sol was in England attempting his own statistical research, but with the goal of disproving ESP. Sol's experiments weren't very like Ryan's. He would position two groups of subjects far distant from one another. One group would then perform some sort of activity, reciting a poem, picking up objects, singing a song, while the other group tried to imagine them. The results were, to quote Sol himself, entirely negative. So, when Sol read Rhine's extrasensory perception, he was more than a little skeptical. He said he was, quote, not amused by Rhine's discovery of a telepathic horse or by the guessing feats of Pierce while sitting in a motor car. Ryan's experiments had been successful, Soul wrote, because of the gullibility of Americans, where simple fraudsters, quote, are proclaimed genuine with a blare of trumpets. Try that shit in Britain, and they'll be, quote again, quickly exposed as frauds or conjuring tricks. Soul attempted to duplicate Ryan's Zenner card trials, and after 120,000, found nothing supernatural in the whole bunch. But when he publicly announced his findings at the Society for Psychical Research, another member asked him if he'd cross-checked his results to see if there was any displacement. That is, had he checked to see if any of his guessers had gotten ahead or behind? Were they getting the right cards at the wrong moment? Soul went back and sifted through his data, and he found that two of his participants out of 160 did show results this way. They weren't guessing the cards that were being flipped, but the cards that were about to be flipped. So, Sol went back to the drawing board. He found two subjects, Basil Shackleton and Gloria Stewart, who performed well above chance once you accounted for displacement. These and Soul's future experiments were conducted with rigorous controls in very large numbers and in front of many witnesses, and Soul's work was, for a long time, considered the strongest and most incontrovertible evidence ever produced of psychic phenomena. You getting the sense that we're going to be circling back later? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's later. Let's keep going for now. Another of the earliest parapsychology bandwagon jumpers was W.H.C. Teneff, a psychologist at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. He had just received his Ph.D. when Ryan published his ESP and soon after formed the Parapsychological Division Lab at Utrecht. The division produced a lot of impressive studies, not only on clairvoyance and precognition, but also on psychic healing and dowsing rods. In 1945, Tenneth began a long-running study into the abilities of the famous Dutch psychic Gerard Cresset, who was known for his work with police in finding lost persons and uncovering their murderers. The most famous story was when a ten-year-old boy went missing near Velsen. His uncle had called Cresset, who had told him, "...I see a small harbor, a small raft, and a little sailboat. The boy was playing on the raft. He slipped and fell into the water. As he fell, his head struck the sailboat, and he received an injury on the left side of his head. I am very sorry. There was a strong current in the harbor. The boy's body will be found in a few days in another small harbor, which is connected with the first. Five days later, the boy was found, exactly as Cresset had predicted and under the same conditions, down to the raft and the small sailboat. WHC Teneff investigated Crecet for a period of more than 15 years and came away with a report that was both quantitatively and qualitatively among the most impressive ever produced in parapsychology. Crecet was, according to Teneff, exactly what he seemed to be, not just accurate, but detailed, frequently providing precise information from great distances and even the future. Kenneth's assessment of Crozet is credited with convincing many parapsychological fence-sitters to come down to the believer's side, including, so he said at least, Dr. Hans Bender. The final person we should talk about in this first wave of parapsychology is Gertrude Schmeidler, who built her parapsychological research lab at the City College of New York during World War II. Schmeidler's work stretched for decades, and it's possible we'll come back to her later, but the important thing is that Schmeidler's work focused not just on ESP generally, but on the effects of belief or attitude on ESP. In her most famous work, she performed what she called sheep-goat experiments, which were basically the same Zener card experiments as Rhine's, but with percipients divided into two groups, the believers, sheep, and the skeptics, goats. Not only did Schmeidler claim that the sheep performed better than chance, she also reported that the goats performed worse than chance, which she took to mean that skeptics also possess psychic abilities, but use them unconsciously to sabotage themselves. That, for reasons you can surely anticipate, is going to be very important down the road. But for now, the road is clear. It's like the highway into Toontown, anthropomorphic sun singing, cows dancing, the whole shebang. Not really, of course, but that's the way we're pretending it happened for now. J.B. Ryan's research had inspired the first wave of formal parapsychological studies, but the field was about to get an even bigger coup. In 1957, Ryan formed the Parapsychological Association, an international scientific society for the advancement of parapsychology. 12 years later, the American Association for the Advancement of Science welcomed the Parapsychological Association into its ranks at the urging of Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead, why? It is hard to overstate the amount of credibility this granted. I mean, yes, most scientists were at least ambivalent about PA's inclusion in the largest and most reputable scientific society in the world. A lot of them were downright hostile. But the imprimatur was vested, and the 1970s were set to get absolutely swole with parapsychology. The University of Virginia opened the Division of Perceptual Studies, headed up by Ian Stevenson, a psychiatrist whose research focus was on evidence of reincarnation, which he accumulated by listening to the meaningless babble of children and comparing it with the lives of historical figures, not to mention examining birthmarks. I can't pretend to respect Stevenson's reincarnation research even for the purposes of this episode. Charles Tart did quantitative studies into near-death experiences at UC Davis, as did Raymond Moody at the University of Nevada. There were parapsychological labs founded in Berlin, London, Paris, Tokyo, Edinburgh, the Czech Republic, India, China, basically everywhere. But the most respected and well-funded program was the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI it would also be the movement's most conspicuous undoing. Oh yeah, we're turning the corner now. Or even better, after this.
2: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We're almost done pretending that all the stuff we've talked about so far is legit. And the best way to break that illusion is to focus in on the place that started it all, even before Duke, Stanford University. The pre-parapsychology parapsychology parapsychology program that T.W. Stanford had funded in the first decades of the 20th century was long gone, when, in 1972, the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI, was commissioned to get back in the game by another group with an even catchier acronym, the DIA, or United States Defense Intelligence Agency. Put in charge of the effort were two high-profile researchers at SRI, Harold E. Puthoff and Russell Targ. Both Putoff and Targ were respected engineers whose prior work was mostly focused on lasers. Putoff at Stanford and Targ at Technical Research Group. But they were also both interested in less mainstream ideas. Targ had a lifelong fascination with the New Age occult movement known as Theosophy, which we've somehow managed to barely talk about at all over the course of this show, but I'm coming for you one day, Helena Blavatsky, just you wait. Russell was an active, early, and high-ranking member of the Church of Scientology, which we also have somehow managed to barely talk about, but I'm probably going to keep it that way because lawyers. SRI and the DIA were particularly interested in what Putoff termed remote viewing which was mostly just a less loaded way to say clairvoyance. But unlike the clairvoyance studies of Rhine et al., Puthoff and Targ decided to test the Percipient's abilities not to view cards in a room somewhere, but to identify real-world locations chosen by the investigators. The idea, as they laid it out, was, to quote their abstract, that natural geographic places, or man-made sites that have existed for a long time, are more potent targets for paranormal perception experiments than are artificial targets prepared in the laboratory. But wait! If your only experience of this field is what I've just told you, you might be confused because hadn't there already been a whole lot of compelling research done of artificial targets prepared in the laboratory? Didn't we just spend like 40 minutes on that stuff? Again, stifle. The other unspoken benefit of Putoff and Targ's remote viewing experiments, no doubt, was that they were a far more seductive proof of concept to the American military and intelligence apparatuses that were funding them. What did the DIA care if a guy could name a card held up by his fiance a few hundred yards away? How would that help beat the Ruskies? But if SRI could show that remote viewers could keep a psychic eye on real-world locations, from safe within Menlo Park, then shit, you could dismantle all the spy planes and satellites in the whole armory and never risk another field agent again. Moscow could never escape the unblinking gaze of the great American psychics. The experiments performed by SRI varied in a lot of little ways, but generally they went something like this. The psychic would be left in some space, an office, a park, even within an electromagnetism-shielded Faraday cage, along with one experimenter, while the rest of the team jumped in a car and made their way to a randomly selected location. After an hour had passed, the viewer was asked to describe that location to the best of their ability into a tape recorder or else to draw a picture of what they were seeing, while the experimenters actually at that location took photographs. Then, Putoff and Targ compared the viewers' impressions of the place with the details of the place itself. Over and over again, in multiple experiments performed with multiple viewers, Putoff and Targ came away impressed. They admitted that, yes, the viewers did make mistakes, They did say some things were present at the locations that weren't, or draw things that didn't quite line up, but the hits were more frequent and more impressive than the misses. This was true of all the viewers they tested, or at least all of the viewers they reported testing, including, curiously, a couple of non-psychic regular people, fellow SRI researchers, who had been brought in as controls. Which is weird. Hmm. But of all the people tested, no one was more impressive than an Israeli-born male model who not only was able to perform well in the remote viewing experiments, but awed the SRI researchers with his other psychic ability, telekinesis. In front of Putoff, Targ, and others, he would bend metal, particularly spoons.
3: Do not try and bend the spoon, that's impossible, instead. Did only try to realize the
1: truth. What truth? There is no spoon.
0: If you don't know who I'm talking about yet, I am so fucking envious of your life. Well, and then we
3: have a gentleman you may have seen, you possibly have read about. He's been on television before. His name is Uri Geller. And, uh, he is known as, a, uh, or s- claims to have psychokinetic powers. And that is the power to affect objects sometimes by moving them, bending them, by lightly touching them, uh by divining the numbers or the throw of a dice when they're in a box. Some people have said uh, he's a fraud. A lot of other people have great belief in what he does. But uh, tonight, we hope uh, we're
0: going to have some most interesting experience. In 1974, Putoff and Targ published Information Transmission Under Conditions of Sensory Shielding, featuring a glowing report on their experiments with Uri Geller. In Nature, the most prestigious scientific journal in the world. Nature's editor went out of his way to write an opinion piece at the very top of the issue, in which he stated repeatedly and forcefully that the journal's inclusion of the article was not an endorsement of its contents that they were publishing it as a snapshot of the state of parapsychology because the research was being conducted by known scientists at an important laboratory with the support of a well-respected university. It is a very silly caveat. In effect, Nature was saying that they were approving the article because of certain markers of credibility, but that readers should not take that approval as a marker of credibility. Which naturally they did. The put-off-target experiments into remote viewing were the biggest thing in parapsychology since J.B. Rhine. They generated further interest and debate over the field, and they turned Uri Geller into probably the most famous psychic of modern times. Certainly the richest.
1: To turn this power or this ability into something useful, that's when I discovered that I could earn vast amounts of money with it. And when I say money, I mean not a million or two, but tens of millions.
0: Geller had already been making the rounds and gaining publicity. A year before the SRI tests began, he had been studied by a famous paranormal investigator named Andrea Poharik. Under hypnosis, (sighs) Geller reportedly admitted to Poharik that he was not a psychic. No, he was a computer the living supercomputer of an alien civilization sent to Earth to intervene in human affairs and prepare humanity for the coming of an extraterrestrial empire. But that didn't win him nearly as much acclaim for some reason. It was the Nature article that allowed Uri Geller to capitalize, performing and grifting everywhere, including on the August 1st, 1973 episode of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson.
3: we have a fascinating gentleman on the show tonight. I'm glad you're here. I think you'll find this fascinating. I don't want you to think that I'm cutting our conversation short tonight because I admire you too much, but we got a little behind time. And I wanted to put a little time on this gentleman, which I think... I've been reading a lot of research on him uh, from the Stanford Research Institute and from the uh, science section of the New York Times. A lot of publicity on this gentleman, whose name is Uri, U-R-I, Uri Geller. Uh, He is from Israel, and he's been the subject of... uh, a lot of study and uh, quite a bit of controversy uh he says that he claims to have been born as i understand it with the power of uh, having psychokinetic ability which is the movement of objects by sometimes not touching them by the mind but without any physical touching of the objects Uh, he's been on shows where objects have bent things have broken just by touching them um and uh, he's most interesting, and I tend to be sometimes skeptical, which may not be fair to him. You should probably have an open mind on this. Um, but I would like to mention that he will be at, at Houston, Texas, on September the 20th.
0: What Geller didn't know going into this interview is that it wasn't really an interview. Carson was immensely skeptical of Geller, not least of which because he had been a magician early in his career and noticed a lot of parallels between stage magic and Geller's abilities. So before the episode, The Tonight Show reached out to another magician and asked him if he'd be interested in creating a fair test of Geller's abilities live on national television. The amazing Randy jumped at the opportunity. And if you don't know who that is, I'm very happy to change that. James Randi fell in love with magic when he saw Harry Blackstone Sr. perform when he was just 13. By 17, Randi had dropped out of high school to perform with a traveling carnival. He was an accomplished conjurer, close-up card magician, and escape artist, as well as a strong writer and a very charismatic performer. But like Houdini and Milbourne Christopher and the great wizard of the North before him, he was also a skeptic. Maybe the most devoted, and talented skeptic of them all. He'd been quietly exposing mediums, faith healers, and other such bunko artists since his career began. He hated fraud and trickery, and as far as he was concerned, there was no bigger fraud and trickster alive than this Uri Geller. So yeah, he'd be happy to help Johnny take him down. Right after an interview with Ricardo Montabon.
3: Uh, and we hope we're gonna see
0: some uh... Rather astounding things tonight. Would you welcome, please? Uri Geller. The procedure was simple. Randy simply collected a bunch of objects much like those Geller had repeatedly demonstrated, bending, moving, or clairvoyancing before.
3: Nice to see you. Thanks. We um uh, we this, have only met this scares me. This, this scares you? Well, this yeah. is ju- we just got some things together here, and as I said, as you as you progress and do what you want to do tonight, while well, you right. can Tell us what you would
0: uh, like to try and... Except this time, those objects were kept secret, out of the reach of Geller or anyone else the whole time. We'll leave it up to you. I'll try
3: when
1: I will really feel up to it, okay?
3: That's what I understand. I, I have seen you on television before, and uh, you say that sometimes you have to be in a certain uh, frame of mind. You uh, sometimes will pass on a particular experiment because you honestly say, oh, I... I don't feel it or I am not getting the thought. Is, is that true?
0: That's true. I really have to be in the mood What to, follows is to the most um, excruciating 22 and, uh, minutes in television had, history. And many
1: times um, nothing really happens. Right. And it doesn't matter if I'm in front of uh, 3,000 people or 10 people, I do my best. And of course, I'm really talking about time now. Mm-hmm. For instance, if I had time to, to bend a nail... Uh, an hour, two hours of unlimited time, then it'll happen in the end. Mm-hmm. And it re- it's really not only up to my mood, but up to, to the people who are you know, watching it and wanting it to happen. And that's
0: it. Geller equivocates.
1: You see, I can only do things that you really concentrate on, uh, studied it before and really project it to me. I cannot sit right here or near
0: you and know exactly what you're thinking mm-hmm. about. There are long stretches of silence, Carson cuts away to commercial break. Now,
3: this just means we're cutting away for a second because we get a little behind time, but we're gonna have, I think, adequate time for you to try what you would like to try tonight, and uh, I'm looking forward to it, I really am. Right, we'll take a, a short break, and we'll be right back. Repeatedly. we have just us. We are talking with Uri Geller, who uh, claims and um, has performed some very uh, astounding feats. We have a variety of objects sitting he here. He clarifies the stakes uh, and requests. Also, and Now these objects out here are... Uh, We have some uh, nails. We have some keys. We have as you can see some forks. We have some aluminum canisters These are the type of aluminum canisters. I guess a roll of film would come in All of these objects have been supplied by us. You did not bring anything here at all We have a small what you'd call a file box with a die in it um, Which I understand sometimes Someone can place the die in the box and shake it up and you have a very good uh, uh, law of averages in naming the the number that is on the top spot of the die without touching the box or opening it, it whatsoever. Matter. So, um,
0: he grows frustrated. Do you like to, uh, try anything here? Why don't you ask some more questions? Want me to ask <laughs> you some more questions? He, to he tries to turn to things work. back when into a normal television interview.
1: Well, I was, I think I was really born with this power. And, uh,
0: but when did you discover it?
1: The first time I was, uh, about seven years old, the psychokinesis power, I would concentrate on my wristwatch and, uh, I could move the hands of the watch just by concentration.
0: We just move them to a completely different hour. Finally, yeah, he begins to attempting to replicate a test he performed hours. at SRI.
3: Are you feeling in the mood yet? Yeah. <laughs> huh? Oh. More questions? All right, let's- What's the capital of South Dakota? <laughs> uh, no, um, I don't mean to press you. Um,
1: okay, uh, let me see. Mm-hmm. One of the experiments I did at uh, SRI Mm-hmm. is uh, finding a hidden object in 10 cans, of course. I did it repeatedly all the time. Right. Um. so I'll take, i we... try the water. So uh, I'll just move my hands over them, and uh, if I'll feel for...
3: And one of them contains water yeah, I like ten. to do
1: it the way, um, we'll start eliminating the ones that do not have the water. That's the way I did it at uh, SRI. That's the way I'll try to do it here.
3: All right, without touching them
1: without touching them, of course. All right. Um, and wh- why don't you pick out the, when I say, take this out? I take it, out, it. So right, of course. That means there's no water in that. I'll try to go down. Now, all what I do now is uh, try to have a sort of a feeling where, where the water is.
3: Now you're not touching them at all.
1: You can see that I'm not.
3: Man, I don't trust me. <laughs>
1: Okay, take this one out. There's no water uh oh, oh. oh sorry. Be careful. We must Sorry. See.
0: Wait, you know, pick them very, very carefully right. And then Johnny accidentally bumps into his microphone. Excuse
3: me. <laughs> I'm sorry, I did not mean to do that. I was trying to move over to get a better look.
1: <laughs> he is really suspicious, you <laughs> know. <laughs> I'm having a
0: hard time with you. I don't mean to be you, right? I really don't. No, no, thought... just, just keep looking. More silence. You can hear a pin drop as Geller waves his hand over the containers.
1: See, Johnny, what happens here, you can see that there's nothing put on here. I'm not Yes, I understand. trying to make it longer. I'm trying to feel if, I, if there's no feeling, then I can't do it. Mm-hmm. That's it.
0: Then he sort of gives up. Okay, let me rest a little. All right. All right. The frustration increases.
1: You know, I'm surprised because before this program, your producer came and he read me at least forty questions you're going to ask me.
3: Well, I can ask you all kinds of questions if you like. If you'd like me to ask you you questions. I have
1: to have time. Give me a little more
3: time all right you would you now yeah. we're, we're gonna, we'll, not gonna we'll touch it. we'll cut away I'm from a commercial and I will verify and everybody in the studio will verify okay. that nobody will touch wow. the objects okay right because I, do, I don't want to push it on Anna but obviously we don't have you know unlimited time know on, on a probably. television show I wish wish we did
0: and it's commercial okay. break time again <laughs> we're back how are you feeling all right fine
1: I feel fine
3: myself in other words this is something you just have to feel and you you, you, you can't be pressed on that's
1: it. that's it it can be pressed and I'm I'm, I'm sorry if... Uh, um, uh, that's it.
3: Would you like to go on to the other experiment? The one where we uh, made the, uh, someone uh, drew an object and it's double sealed in the envelope? Or would you like to continue with this?
1: Well, uh, let me try. I'm not, this one is not over yet. Uh, I'm going to no, come back fair to you. not. Can you <laughs> take this spoon in your hand? Put
3: this spoon in my so, hand,
0: this take one. Take
1: it and hold it like that.
0: Eventually he hands one of the spoons to Ricardo Montadon and begins the bending process. It very,
1: no, open it and put your other hand on it gently like that. I'll put my hand over your finger. Mm-hmm. Tell me if you feel and put press it, like feel the whole. Tell me if you feel anything coming from my hand. What I'm trying to do is bend the spoon under
0: and after a long time, he says that the spoon is okay, bending.
1: gently lift. I'll hold it here. Gently lift up. You see if, if it's bent there.
0: Yes. Yes, it is. It is. Yes.
1: It's, oh, it's bending more.
0: Can you see? But it's not apparent to Johnny, is or to remembered. me, that it Just is ahead. bending. Nowhere. <laughs> it was very straight.
3: If
1: you, no, it was straight. Uh, I, I hope the camera can... Uh, focus on this. Oh, it's, it's,
3: yeah. it does look like there's a slight no, bend there. it. No, will
1: it. keep bending. It bends more. Okay. Now, of course, this is a, this is not a big bend, Johnny. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the show, one of your video men brought me a key and uh, I did it for him completely bent to, I'd say, he it to 40 me, yeah. degrees, but there, I'll put it here and it'll keep going. Look,
3: There, have to, I had no, Can we cut away again and still come back here? Yeah, okay. Okay, we'll be right back after another
0: word from one of our sponsors. So they go to commercial break again. When the show returns, Uri Geller We're appears right at the back. end of his
3: row. Uri was telling me you, you, you don't feel, what, strong tonight? I Is that not
1: strong. It's not all tonight. Right now I'm, feel, I'm feeling being pressed and then I can't... Well, I'm not trying to
3: press it. you. i really not. But, you no, know, you're only I'm,
1: telling me, well, will you try that or <laughs> with that?
3: Well, I thought that was the idea of... Uh, <laughs> of uh, no, I'm not, no, I'm not trying to put you down. I, I didn't mean that patronizingly at all, because I have seen you on shows, and I, I thought the idea was to show, if, if you possibly could, some of the things that you claim you can do. And I certainly don't want to and if you don't feel like you can't do it tonight, or, or don't wish to try, I certainly don't want to uh, make you feel uncomfortable. I, I'm not trying to be skeptical. I would love to see these things. I really would. Right. Um, is there anything else that uh, appeals to you? Now, now, if I'm pressing again, uh, <laughs> well, for example, now you asked us before the, the show and this yes. afternoon for one, one of our staff members to draw on a couple of cards and seal them in an envelope, which we have done.
1: Yes. Um, well, let me tell you again, uh, this didn't bend much and right now here I'm stuck. I don't feel for it more. So I don't want to be stuck either on an envelope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd uh, rather tell you that Many people are skeptical about these things. They see something happening and then they want to see it closer and closer. There have been many people running and saying that they can duplicate what I do. Well, I can only say that if I'm on stage and mm-hmm. people see me from far, they can always say that there is some sort of a sleight of hand sure. or trickery here. That's true. But I've been working with uh, science quite a lot and uh, by. Doing what you see here under controlled conditions, because this
0: is not a controlled condition.
3: When, what, do, what do you mean?
0: Well, this is not a controlled condition. This is very much a controlled condition, Ari, and that's the problem.
1: What I mean is, uh, for instance, in experiments, uh, it's covered with bell jars and there are cameras running and many scientists looking at every point, although you're trying to do the same, but but this is really not a control condition. But again, it's quite difficult for me, and uh, I won't go on something that uh, I don't feel strong for.
3: All right.
0: After a bit more awkwardness.
3: Well, it doesn't leave us much, does it? Uh... We do have three empty
0: canisters.
3: Yep, we have, we have three empty canisters there, and we have seven over here. And,
1: uh, and a bent spoon.
3: And a spoon. And a spoon that's got a, a, a slight bend in it. Uh, no, I'm really, I'm not trying to be it's all right, patronizing but, uh, at all. I wanted this to be of great success Johnny, tonight for you. I feel very
1: good. Uh, I feel very good.
3: Okay, we'll take a break and we'll come right back.
0: Carson gets in a real good closing line.
3: Well, Uri, I don't want you to feel bad about this tonight. I, the monologue doesn't work every night either. Uh,
0: and that's the end of the show. Feel Man, Johnny Carson was very good at television, right? You gotta love him. And simultaneously, you gotta hate Uri Geller. He's just such an obvious fraud. And while some have argued that his disastrous Tonight Show appearance actually helped him grow more popular with the masses, it definitely didn't help put off Targ, SRI, or the reputation of parapsychology writ large. When more skeptical investigators took a look at SRI's data or went to Stanford themselves, they were aghast at how easily a magician had run circles around the investigators. Geller called off experiments on a whim, changed protocols in the middle of them, handled and viewed sensitive materials, sometimes privately. He did whatever he wanted, and Putoff and Targ didn't just let him, they let him, watched him, and believed him anyway. This wasn't exactly shocking, though. Because in the complete history of parapsychology, the true history of parapsychology, people seem to get away with this kind of crap all the time.
3: and jethro box of oddities that is really mysterious join cat and jethro gilligan toth for the strange the bizarre the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities the
2: webby award-winning box of oddities podcast from airwave media the true
0: history of parapsychology is truly a history of lies Like WHC Teneff, who performed the 15-year study on Gerard Crosette, the psychic who supposedly rescued, discovered, or avenged so many missing persons. It turned out that Teneff had been stripping out Crosette's misses from his reports, scraping off the edges to build simple, compelling stories where the truth was usually less impressive. Like. That ten-year-old boy from Velsen who went missing near the raft and sailboat, whom Chrisette said would be found in another harbor in a few days? Yeah, well, that didn't happen that way. In actuality, he'd told the boy's uncle that you must look near a gas holder. It might be a tank or a boiler or something like that. He'd also said he saw a road near a ditch with a small bridge over a little water. When the uncle asked him if he could mean the harbor, he said, No, that is too broad. I don't see so much water. Holland is like 90% roads near ditches with small bridges, so the police, on Crescet's advice, looked approximately everywhere. Before, after several days, they decided he must have meant the harbor, even though that was the one place he had literally said couldn't be right. But in Tenev's hands, that story was turned into a triumph. S.G. Soul, the once-believer turned skeptic, turned believer again, who got the Zener card data even more impressive than Rhine's. In 1978, it was discovered that he had fabricated much of his data flat out. More often though, the fraud wasn't quite as straightforward. Take Dr. Hans Bender and his experiments with Miss D, the pseudonymous young philosophy student. What Bender didn't disclose was that he was romantically involved with said young philosophy student at the time of his study. He married her a few years later. Oh, also, it turns out he probably wasn't a doctor. Remember, in these experiments, Bender was looking at letters of the alphabet, while Miss D, soon to be Mrs. B, described aloud the picture she had in her head. It was up to Bender to decide whether his lover's vision... Sounded like the right letter, or not? Which gets us to the next big problem with parapsychology, the ubiquitous methodological errors and flaws present in nearly every experiment to ever achieve positive results. In the remote viewing experiments at SRI, for instance, not only did you have cheaters like Eric Geller manipulating the parameters, the parameters themselves were insufficient. Again, the experimenters got to filter the data to decide whether the hits outweighed the misses. And even if you eliminated that, the actual process for conducting the experiments had lots of opportunities for cueing and sensory leakage. When other labs have tried to replicate their experiments with stricter controls, the effect has disappeared. And that is true across the board and from the very beginning. The parapsychology lab at Duke, under the direction of J.B. Ryan, conducted some shockingly sloppy experiments. There's very good reason to believe that the Rhines and their colleagues were taken by hoaxes on multiple occasions. Actually, later in the 1970s, even Ryan admitted this, saying that he had himself detected seven hoaxers in his midst over his time at Duke, but he hadn't exposed them and withheld their identities even in that late admission. I think we can laugh straight in the face of the claim that Sarah Ownby scored 25 out of 25 on the Zenner cards when she performed the test on herself alone at home, but what about the tests she performed with her fiancé, George Zirkel? When they were put in different rooms, Ownby would draw a card and then press a telegraph key, setting off a buzzer for Zirkel. Then she would press it again when she flipped the second card, and again with the third, and so on. In 1938, Ted Annaman, editor of the journal Jinx, published an article entitled, Was Prof. J.B. Rhine Hoodwinked? In which he explained how easy it would be for the young paramours to work out a timing system, one second between buzzes meaning circle, two meaning star, etc. Working that way, it would be easy for Zirkel to get 24 out of 25 cards correctly. The only one he'd have to guess would be the first one. The one that started the count. The Pierce-Pratt distance experiments, where the experimenter drew cards in the physics department while the experimentee sat 200 yards away in the library, that was the whole of the experiment. There was no observer in the library watching Pierce to make sure he stayed there. This was a potential issue in a lot of the Ryan experiments. There was seldom a third person observing and recording the data. Instead, the participants often were put in charge of collecting their own data, writing down their guesses, which made it possible for them to potentially fudge and fill in the right answers after the test was done. But the Pierce-Pratt distance experiments had an even larger sore thumb of a weakness. In 1960, skeptic C.E.M. Hansel visited Duke and found that there were three ways someone could surreptitiously look into the room and see the cards Pratt was drawing. A window a crack at the top of the door, and, wildest of all, a trap door in the ceiling, directly above Pratt's table. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. In 1937, the parapsychology lab started making Zenner decks available for sale to the general public. Researchers quickly discovered that some of the images on the card's faces were visible from the back. Even when that was controlled for, most Zenner experiments were done with the subject and experimenter sitting face to face, and a divider between them to block the guesser's view. But sometimes the experimenter would separate the cards into corresponding piles, which would give the subject an extra piece of information. Sometimes the experimenter was wearing glasses, giving the guesser a chance to spot the card's reflections. They might even get a look via the experimenter's bare eyes or receive cues, consciously or otherwise, through body language and facial expressions. Worst of all, in most of the cases where subjects performed well, they were allowed to handle the cards before the test, shuffling or cutting the deck. You don't have to be an accomplished magician or card shark to understand the problem with that. Come to think of it, why use cards at all? I mean, I see how they might feel like a natural fit for psychic abilities, but is there any item less trustworthy? Practically the whole trade of close up magic is predicated on how many ways there are to deceive through cards. And even the most scrupulous of gamblers probably knows a dozen ways to force a card, or mark a card, or fake a shuffle, or sneak a peek. If you're looking for a foolproof way to prove a psychic isn't engaging in trickery, a deck of cards is the worst tool you could choose for the job. It's like turning the lights off in the drawing room to catch the murderer. It makes no sense. So you've got inadequate controls, rampant fraud, and methodological errors. Parapsychology was, and is, replete with all three. But there are way more problems than that. When Ryan and others figured the odds of their results, they were usually wrong. John Mulholland was another of the most famous magicians of the 20th century. He produced a few of magic's most confounding and difficult effects, and like the Stanford Research Institute, he was even commissioned by the CIA to write an instruction book for spies on how to use magic for subterfuge. He was also, like all the other magicians in the story, an ardent skeptic. And when he read Ryan's extrasensory perception, something stood out to him that had slipped by most everyone else. The odds. Ryan had peppered his studies with astonishing statements of probability. The chances of Lindsmeyer's first run were less than a million to one. His streak in the car was 30 billion to one, and so on. Mulholland read those odds and thought, Wait, is that right? He approached a friend with his question. Walter B. Pitkin was a professor of philosophy and psychology at Columbia University, best known as the author of the 1932 bestseller, Life Begins at 40. Mulholland asked Pitkin if he knew the odds of getting long streaks or correct guesses. Pitkin didn't. Did he know how you could figure those odds? Pitkin wasn't sure. But together they found a way. They printed up their own decks of cards, based on the Zenner cards. But instead of shapes, they went back to numbers, one through five, with five copies of each, a total of 25 to a deck, just like the ones Ryan used. But they printed up two versions, one with black lettering and one with red. Then they loaded the cards into mechanical shufflers and ran them over and over. The idea was to see how frequently the black cards matched up with the red ones. The black cards symbolized the experimenter's draw, and the red ones symbolized random guessing. What Mulholland and Pitt confound was that long runs of correct guesses were far more frequent than the base odds Ryan had assigned. Sometimes they'd get whole decks where none of the cards matched. But the base expectation of 5 per 25 occurred a quarter less than expectations. Six matches were 25% more common than chance suggested, and runs of seven were 50% more common. They even had a few deals where half or more of the cards matched. When you averaged out the whole experiment, thousands of deals, the results looked like chance. But when you focused in, you could find strikingly anomalous streaks everywhere. That probably sounds perfectly reasonable to you intellectually. If you take a coin out of your pocket right now and start flipping it and flipping it and flipping it a thousand times, what you'll find is that roughly 50% of the time it lands heads and 50% of the time it lands tails. But in that thousand flips, there will be long runs where heads will come up three, four, five, six, seven times in a row. And if you subdivided your thousand flips into smaller heats, took a break from flipping every 10 times and started over, you'd end up with a handful of sets that look really weird. It might make you think that on those runs, something strange was happening, that you were influencing the coin with your mind somehow. But to draw that conclusion, you would have to dismiss all the times that didn't happen. And you'd have to ignore the 30,000 foot view of your coin flips in their totality, which is pretty much precisely what Ryan had done. In a long enough series, even if you control for cheating and sensory leakage and queuing and all other methodological errors, anomalous results will occur. It is baked into the same statistical chances that you're theoretically measuring against, which is partly why you need control groups, like Mulholland and Pitkin's decks, to compare your results against even when you think you know what the outcome should be but precious few parapsychological experiments employ them well. And maybe I'm sounding too cynical now. Maybe it seems to you that I'm not keeping an open mind about this stuff. But I would argue that it's parapsychology's defenders who are the closed-minded ones. In the January 2003 edition of the Journal of Consciousness Studies, skeptic and psych professor James Alcock wrote a very famous article entitled Give the null hypothesis a chance. Reasons to remain doubtful about the existence of psi. In it, he lays out an overwhelming case. One of his chief complaints, a complaint that goes back to Ryan's first publication in 1934, is that there is no theory for parapsychology. None that is dominant, at least. If we ignore all the fraud and methodological error and statistical error and accept these experiments as legit, what is it that they mean? How are thoughts being sent from one person to another? How does information travel from a card to a mind? What medium does this information travel through? How does a person see things distant from them? Are they really seeing? If not, what are they doing? What force would allow a person to move a book, bend a spoon, influence the role of a die? How could the human brain interact with the future? Not only is there no good hypothesis to answer these questions, not only is it so far impossible to detect these things happening, but each of them violates well-established laws of science. The inverse square law, the speed of light, the second law of thermodynamics, the arrow of time. And because there is no strong working theory behind parapsychology, it ends up being a definition of exclusion. What psi is, is so vague, that the only evidence you could possibly provide for it would be by eliminating all other possibilities. This couldn't have happened by normal means, so it has to be something else. At the end of the day, parapsychology is the study of something else's, but this gets it into a tautological spiral. We go looking for anomalous results because we believe there should be some, and we believe there should be some because we're looking. Usually, science crafts theory because there is something that doesn't fit with our understanding of the universe, that needs explaining. But parapsychology assumes that there should be something that doesn't fit and goes out actively looking for it, even though it has never come up in the regular course of things. And that is why I think it is safe to say that the believers are actually the closed minded ones. If you really dig into the history of parapsychology, what you'll find is that in the vast majority of cases, nothing happens. Just like all the way back to the Zener cards, most of the experiments fail to find anything out of the ordinary. That is to say, they reinforce the null hypothesis that there is nothing to find. But few psi researchers, faced with years and even decades of null results, re-examine their priors and make the most obvious, elegant, and parsimonious conclusion that the null hypothesis is probably correct. Instead, they cling to the exceptionally rare results that seem to indicate something might be happening, even though those results usually prove to have been founded on error. And when errors can't be found, what about then? Well, that's when we get to the biggest, honkingest, most damning problem in all of parapsychology, repeatability. Repeatability, or replication, is the most important cornerstone of modern science. We saw this recently with the announcement that a team at Korea University had created what they thought to be a room temperature superconductor, designated LK99. Almost immediately, folks around the world began trying to make and test their own LK99 samples, from prestigious institutions like Argonne National Laboratory to a pseudonymous Russian cat girl called Iris on Twitter. But after a few weeks of study, a consensus formed that LK99 is not a room temperature superconductor, or even a superconductor at any temperature. It's a diamagnetic insulator of no particular value. When Ryan published Extrasensory Perception in 1934, a lot of scientists took his data seriously, whether they were skeptical or not, and set about trying to replicate it. All of them, from Princeton, to the University of Chicago, to London University, to individual psychologists working in private practice, failed. No one was ever able to replicate Ryan's results. When Ryan introduced more effective controls in response to criticism, he couldn't replicate them either. And that pattern persisted universally for every parapsychological experiment of the 20th century. The true history of parapsychology doesn't take the shape I gave this story. It wasn't a string of successes propelling the field's credibility ever higher until a magician failed to find water on The Tonight Show. The real course has been a non-stop mountain range peak and valley, peak and valley, as new experiments were performed, trumpeted as triumphs by the parapsychological community, only to have them fail to replicate, fall into disrepute, until the next new experiment came along, only to suffer the same fate. A lot of believers have chalked this up to Gertrude Schmeidler's sheep-goat experiments. The problem with replication, they say, is that psychic phenomena fail to manifest in the face of skepticism. They are, in the terminology of the field, elusive or jealous, subject to what is termed the Psy Experimenter Effect, which is pretty much a gussied-up way of saying that fairies are invisible to non-believers. Not every psychical researcher believes in the Psy Experimenter Effect, though, and even a lot of those that do aren't content to use it as a catch-all excuse. Even if psychic abilities are jealous— If anyone is to prove that they exist, they'll have to provide a workaround to that jealousy. Since the 1970s, some of the top names, journals, and institutions of parapsychology have acknowledged what became known as the repeatability problem inside. It was the early 1980s, and parapsychology had just suffered a long string of embarrassments. The McDonnell Laboratory for Psychical Research at Washington University had found three subjects who performed extremely well in all manners of testing and had published about them only to discover that the whole thing had been a sting operation. The three subjects were young magicians, trained to insert themselves into the program and expose its weaknesses. By the amazing Randy. Then Susan Blackmore, one of the brightest and most high-profile minds in the field, had announced that she was switching sides that after nearly two decades of research, she had found no evidence for parapsychological claims and had been convinced by the null hypothesis. J.B. Ryan's successor at the parapsychology lab at Duke was caught cheating. And below those high-profile defeats, there was that constant low-grade hum of experiments failing to replicate. In 1983, the Parapsychology Foundation held a conference to tackle the repeatability problem. They outlined a large number of changes that should be made to parapsychological research. Larger sample sizes, more scrutiny, a move away from the classic search for statistical significance that had led all the zener card readers astray. They also suggested that psi researchers should head off repeatability at the pass, that they themselves should conduct experiments multiple times, and that they should bring in skeptics to perform them alongside the believers. It was a new more rigorous, methodologically sound, adversarial model for research. Members of the foundation believed it would help them achieve better, stronger, more convincing results. And hell, even if it didn't do that, at least parapsychologists could spare themselves the embarrassment of being ripped apart in the replication phase, because they'd have skeptics on hand ripping them apart in private first. And then, something extraordinary happened. In the early 90s, one of those skeptics was turned, convinced, baptized a believer, and he started working in secret to create an experiment that would clear all bars and survive all criticism. It would be simple, methodologically sound, immune to fraud, bias, and the like. He'd conduct his experiments with the same gold-standard practices as he'd used in his decades of mainstream work, and most of all, he would make it repeatable. He would prove once and for all to everyone that psychic abilities really existed and in 2011 he did that's next time on part 3 wait wait don't turn this off yet Due to a scheduling snafu, part three, the conclusion of this series, will be in your feed in three weeks, on October 10th, rather than the usual two. If I had realized I had that calendar, I probably wouldn't have put a three-part series here, but I didn't, so I did. But if you head over to patreon.com theconstant the and sign up to support the show, you will get the conclusion a week early as well as a bonus episode about one of my favorite psychic investigations. In addition to early, ad-free episodes and monthly bonus content for as long as you're willing and able to support the show. If you've been thinking about doing that, this might be a good time. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the very mysterious Psychic Research Foundation, This has been The Constant.